Hello, readers. Scott Pelley is a native Texan, husband, father of two, and award-winning journalist. His 45 years as a news reporter and photographer includes 20 years with 60 Minutes and time spent as anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News from 2011 through 2017. Regarding his work on 60 Minutes, he is the most awarded correspondent in the 51-year history of the show, and he's a published author. His book is Truth Worth Telling, a reporter's search for meaning in the stories of our times. Scott, thank you for the time. How's it going today, man? I'm doing great. I'm glad to hear your voice. How are you? Doing great. So, Scott, what was your goal in writing Truth Worth Telling? Well, you know, I wanted to write a memoir, but I didn't want to write a memoir about me uh, because I didn't think anybody would care about that. But it occurred to me that I had met the most fascinating people in the world over the course of my career at 60 Minutes and at CBS News, and that that was worth writing about. People who had discovered the meaning of their lives in some of the historic moments of our times that I covered. And I thought that people would be very interested in those stories about those people. And uh, that's that was the organizing principle behind the book. The chapters are mostly named after virtues like gallantry, selflessness, uh, courage, and valor. And uh, they recount stories of people who are famous and people you've never heard of but you want to know about. And uh, although you do make a concerted effort not to make this book about yourself, you do share your story as somebody who grew up uh, here in the state of Texas. You did uh, a lot of your growing up in Lubbock, attending Coronado High School and Texas Tech. And you even got your start in journalism as a copy boy at the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, where you literally lied about your age to get that <laughs> initial job. All these years later, what do you cherish most about growing up in an area that Frederick Law Olmsted described in the mid-1800s as, quote, an immense, desolate, barren tableland, probably destined to be of little service to man. <laughs> that is what uh, Frederick Law Olmsted, the father of American landscape architecture, said about the Llano Estacado um, when he was on a saddle trip through Texas in the mid-19th century. And, uh, you know, one of the things I say in the book um, is that uh, one of the things that Olmsted didn't know was that there was a vast lake of water underneath his feet, the Ogallala Aquifer, which of course turned the Lubbock area into the largest cotton-producing region in the world. <laughs> so you know, what did I learn from all of that? I was born in San Antonio, and as you mentioned, I, I grew up in Lubbock, and my uh, career in search of the truth did begin with a lie. <laughs> they only hired kids at the Avalanche Journal to be copy boys from the age of 16 up, and I was 15, but I was dying to get into this work. And so I did fib a little bit about my age, and I got the job there. But, you know, these were great people that I lived with, the Lubbock area, the farming community, to use a a cliche, salt-of-the-earth kind of people who who fought against the elements, were depending on the cotton coming in every year for the economy. My parents were greatest generation people, like so many people I grew up with. They had been children in the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. My father flew 35 missions over Germany during World War II. My mother built airplanes here in the United States while my father was fighting. And so those were the kinds of people that my childhood 
was uh, around, and I learned so much from them about perseverance and optimism, and that has helped me every day in my career. Scott, it seems like we live in a world where people can't make up their mind on what they want to do for a living. I hear stories all the time of of college kids changing their major four or five times and then still not really knowing what they want to do. Uh, You just mentioned it. You were so set on joining this profession at a very young age. Was there a certain moment in your childhood that sparked that, or why were you so keen on getting into this business uh, at such a young age? You know, what a great question, and the answer to that is yes, there was a moment my uncle was a wedding and portrait photographer in Dallas. And when I was 13 years old, he gave me an old 35-millimeter reflex camera. And I fell in love with the thing, fell for it hard, started processing my own film, started processing my own color prints and all that sort of thing. And I wanted to be a photographer for National Geographic. That's why I lied about my age to get a job at the Avalanche Journal was to get in there and in the hope of one day making that job uh, a transition into uh, photography at the paper. Well, one day the executive producer I should say executive editor of the newspaper, came into the wire room where I was doing my high school homework. I I worked the three to midnight shift. He was a big barrel-chested guy with Marine Corps bearing and a silver crew cut. His name was uh, Dave Knapp. And Dave looked down at me and said, do you want to be a reporter? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I never gave it any thought. He said, well, do you or don't you? And I said, well, sure, I guess. And he took me into the newsroom, sat me in front of a typewriter, which I had no idea how to operate, and I've been a reporter ever since. Hmm. Scott, you mentioned some of the different chapter titles in this book. Chapter 4 is titled Authenticity and focuses on Bruce Springfield. At one point before the first show of his reunion tour with the E Street Band several years back, you asked a couple of guys in the band if they ever got tired of playing Born to Run. Uh, Roy Batan responded with a quote from Tony Bennett, who was asked a similar question about performing I Left My Heart in San Francisco. And Bennett's answer was, no, it gave me the keys to the world. Do you have that one thing in your career that gave you the keys to the world? Wow. You know what? No one's ever asked me that question. What a great, great question. You know, I, getting uh, the job... Uh, to uh, to be a correspondent on 60 Minutes really gave me literally the keys to the world. I've I've been from the Arctic to the Antarctic and everywhere in between. I've met the most fascinating people. That's I had all these stories brimming in me, and people have always asked me for years, when are you going to write a book? And so I finally sat down and thought, you know what, I'm going to start on this, and I started writing. It was a secret project because I didn't want to tell anybody I was writing a book because I wasn't sure I could do it, wasn't sure I would like it. Um, But as I got into it, it became more and more fun, particularly the research that I was doing to inform some of my experiences in Iraq, Afghanistan, 9-11, and other things. And so... Uh, I really enjoyed doing it, and when the book was finished, that's when I started telling people that I'd written a book, and then HarperCollins was so kind to to buy the book and and bring it to publication today. But to get all the way back around to your question, 60 Minutes really opened the world to me. Um, My uh, 
our, our job at 60 Minutes really is to go to the most fascinating places and interview the most fascinating people on earth. It's a pretty great job. I tell young journalists that journalism is the greatest continuing education program ever. And so uh, that, that has been my education. No doubt about that. And uh, you've also had the opportunity to watch some unique sports around the world. Uh, you do cover your time as a uh, war reporter in various areas, uh, especially in the Middle East. You spent more than a decade covering the U.S. war in Afghanistan. At one point, to gain insight into the collective Afghani psyche, you watched battles of their national sport, Buzkashi. For people unfamiliar, what is Buzkashi? <laughs> This is the national sport of Afghanistan. This is, this is the uh, football of Afghanistan. But if I may say so, it makes the NFL look like badminton. <laughs> Buskashi is um, played on horseback. And uh, the, the name literally translates from Persian to goat dragging. And a carcass of a dead goat or dead calf is placed on the middle of the field there are five horseback riders on each side, and the idea here, the object of the game, is to pick up the dead calf and charge down the field, which is about the length of five football fields, and drop the calf in a goal. Well, easy enough, well, it's pretty difficult, but easy enough, except all the riders have eight-foot-long rawhide whips. <laughs> And the team playing defense whips the rider carrying the calf in hopes of getting him to drop it and thereby intercept the the ball, if you will, and take it down to the other side of the field. And crowds of, of thousands of people line the field, and very often these horses go charging off the field into the crowd. People are killed, both players and spectators, every once in a while, in these Bushkashi matches. And so everywhere I go, I ask myself, what games do these people play? And uh, that's the answer in Afghanistan. It is a rough and unforgiving place. So unlike the NFL, there's no player safety concerns uh, going on with this sport over there? No, no. They, they don't wear pads. They don't wear helmets. They don't wear anything. And they whip each other mercilessly <laughs> to get that calf. And there are, no, there are no officials on the field either. There don't seem to be any rules. Oh, that is uh, wow. what a crazy sport. And what did it tell you about the people of Afghanistan? Well, they are uh, an, an ancient people. Um, Afghanistan has a, a terrible accident of geography. They have been overrun by the Russians, by the British, by the Indians, by the Pakistanis years for, for hundreds and hundreds of years because people wanted to control the Silk Route um, uh, through there and also in the, in the effort to control Islam and the spread of Islam over the centuries and what have you. So the Afghan, to be an Afghani is to know war and very little else. So they are a very tough people. I discovered them to be a generous people and a kind people to strangers, but they are a very tough people that live in a very unforgiving environment. You write in Chapter 12, Scott, uh, which is dedicated to your coverage of the 2016 presidential election, that both 
major political parties have exhausted their strength in an endless battle to discredit the other, thus failing the nation. I couldn't agree with those words anymore. Is there an obvious solution to fix this two-party system that is clearly broken? Well, you know, the book is going to be a little controversial. I get that because of what I say about both the Democrats and the Republicans, just as you quoted from the book. Is there a way to fix this? Let me tell you, there has to be. There has to be, because it's the only way a democracy can work. You know, how many stars are in the American flag? Well, there are 50. There aren't any flags that have conservative states on them, and there aren't any flags that have liberal states on them. There are 50 stars, and that blue field that the 50 stars are on is called the Union, and we don't call it that for nothing. So I don't know how and when this is going to happen. But some adults are going to have to come onto the stage, unlike what we've seen just this past week in Washington. And we're going to all have to come together as a people on that field and understand that we're not going to get everything we may want as an individual, but that the only way democracy works is through compromise. In fact, that is the reason that democracies were invented. It was a system by which diverse people with different goals and views could get together and have a peaceful government. That's why democracies were invented. And so we need to get back to that and understand that we don't want to go left, we don't want to go right, we want to go forward. And I hope that message resonates in the book. Scott, on September 1st, 1998, you were a part of a White House press corps covering the ceremonial greeting inside the Kremlin between (laughs) President Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin at the start of a two-day summit in Moscow. How did you end up lying on your back in Red Square just beyond the Kremlin's outer walls? You know, I – the the, – The Russians told us, I was part of the press corps covering the travels of President Clinton, and the Russians told us, please do not interrupt the ceremony. Well, I was a little bit offended by that. We don't ever do that in the White House press corps. We don't interrupt these official ceremonies with heads of state. However, when the ceremony is over, we are going to start shouting questions, and the president can decide to answer them or not. Well, when the ceremony had concluded... And they said, thank you, press, which means we're done. And they turned off the lights for the television cameras. The Dow Jones Industrials had dropped the day before 500 or so points. It was a big deal at the time. The president hadn't talked about it. So I said, President Clinton, the Dow, and I didn't get any further than that before two Russian security people had me and lifted me off my feet and drug me out of the room. I thought, well, okay, that, that's that. But no, 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 my journey had only begun. We went down a flight of stairs. I went down backwards with my heels hitting every step as we went. Then we went outside. I'm going through the courtyard of the Kremlin. We approach a door in the Kremlin wall. They open the door, and they throw me in the air like a shot putter on steroids, and I crash onto the cobblestones of Red Square. I'm lying there on my back with my press credentials around my neck, and one of the security men walks up, grabs my credentials, and snaps them off my neck. So now, here are the two of us, right, lying there, me and Vladimir Lenin. And I start looking around at the Spaskaya clock tower and St. Basil's Cathedral and everything, my back aching like mad. But I think, you know, I have never been thrown out of a more beautiful place. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is straight out of a movie, man. That is crazy. It was crazy. And uh, while we're having you tell some of the lighter parts of this book, this this is uh, definitely a very heavy read at parts. And you really open up uh, with a heavy topic for a lot of Americans. September 11th, 2001, you tell a number of incredible stories involving uh, people who lost their lives that day and family of those who lost their lives, people inside the building who are working in World Trade Center 1 or 2, first responders who are trying to help help people get out of those buildings. And by happenstance, you were actually in New York City on September 11th. When you learned that a plane had hit World Trade Center 1, you hailed a cab to take you as close to that area as possible so that you could cover uh, this clearly uh, huge event, uh, which the cab did, and it got you about two miles away. Is there something that sticks out in your mind from that trek over to the World Trade Center site? Well, I was thinking about the bombing of the World Trade Center, which had occurred several years before, and I had been there for that. And one of the facts that was stuck in my head was that at any given time, there were 20,000 people in each building. When the cab stopped on the West Side Highway because there was a crowd of people, many tens of thousands of people walking up the six lanes of the West Side Highway to get out of downtown, I started running through the crowd and uh, ran for a long time, finally got to the World Trade Center, and very shortly after I got there, the buildings came down. Witnessing that event uh, was certainly one of the most traumatic and um, life-changing events I've ever experienced. One of the things that I experienced that day was watching the firefighters of the FDNY charging into those buildings, knowing what the risk was against just the chance that they might be able to save someone. 343 members of the FDNY were killed that day. The largest loss of life of any emergency service in human history. And what I wanted to do in that first chapter, which is entitled Gallantry, is in some way pay adequate tribute to those firefighters who gave their lives on that day in such a selfless way. And I was able to do a great deal of research with with records and analysis and all of that that informed what it was that I saw with my own eyes. I didn't know in that moment why the buildings had collapsed in terms of their structure and, and so many engineering reports and things have been done since then. And so I'm able to put all of that together in the first chapter to express my gratitude to those people who, who tried to save those lives at the World Trade Center. As we know now, there weren't 20,000 people in each building. The, the, the FDNY-directed evacuation turned out to be very successful. Still, nearly 3,000 people died on that day, and, and of course, um, there, I hope, I hope that I will never cover another story, anything like that. Understandable. And near the end of the book, you mentioned that your friend Stephen Colbert once asked to stage a Colbert Report gag on the CBS Evening News set, but you declined. Why? You know, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm seen as a little old-fashioned in this way. Um, Stephen wanted to do a gag on the CBS Evening News set, as you said, uh, kind of a pratfall thing he was going to use in his show. And I said, look, I can't do that because the, the CBS Evening News set must always be a scene of real, reliable information. We don't joke with it. 
We don't stage fictional events on it. It's only about real, reliable information. I don't want there to be any confusion. And, you know, months I figured that Stephen, who's a great friend of mine, must have thought I was being pompous about all of that. But he was speaking to an audience several months later, and he told the audience the same story, and his conclusion was, thank God something <laughs> is sacred. And I just couldn't agree more. There's too much in this media world we're in now. There's too much of a blurring of this line between what is solid independent, reliable journalism, and what is entertainment. And I think that that blurring of the line has given our national politicians license to start saying things like fake news and enemy of the American people. Um, I think we need to get back on the right side of that line. You offer some fantastic writing and reporting suggestions to the young journalists at the very end of the book. You turn to the legendary Don Hewitt, creator of 60 Minutes, for two pieces of advice on feature writing. Don had two rules. Number one, find people who can tell the story better than we can. And number two, tell me a story. What is the key to telling a good story? That's, you know, it's just, just the, those things seem so simple, and yet it's the the thing people ask me, how has 60 Minutes been on the air for 52 years after Don created it in 1968? That's how. Uh, tell me a story. I mean, well, of course, but, you know, you, I, I used to go into Don's office and you'd say something like, Don, climate change. We've got to do a story about climate change. He would say, that's an issue. Tell me a story. And what he meant by that was find a fascinating person, a fascinating story through which we learn everything we need to learn about climate change. You know, I compare this in the book to Steven Spielberg. Spielberg didn't write a movie called D- uh, didn't direct a movie called D-Day. He directed a movie called Saving Private Ryan. Hmm. You learn everything you need to know about D-Day in that one tiny narrow little story. And so that's what we do at 60 Minutes and the last chapter of the book is entitled To a Young Journalist and I want to impart some of this uh, wisdom, if you will, that I have uh, accumulated over these many years from people like the late Don Hewitt, and pass that along to these young people, because there is no democracy without journalism. The founders gave us the power over the government, but the only way we can exercise that power is with reliable, independent information. And so I need young people to be interested in journalism, but I also need them to be really good at it, because the quality of our democracy depends on the quality of our information. Scott, uh, you know, journalism is, uh, this industry is heavily criticized and scrutinized, and you talk about it, and you just mentioned uh, your efforts to try to lead and pave the way for the next generation of journalists out there. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts, though. What do you think journalism is, let's say, 20 years and 50 years down the road? What do you think this industry has become? You mean in, in the future? In the future, um, yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, a, this is an inflection point for journalism and information, uh, and I think a very dangerous one. We have to make the right decisions, and we have to make them right now. We have moved seamlessly, in my view, from the information age to the disinformation age. Never before in human history has more information been available to more people, and that's a great thing. But it's also true that never before in human history has more bad information been available to more people. 
journalism has become so important to fight back against the disinformation that is on the Internet, that is propagated by hostile nation states or cynical people out to make a buck or cynical politicians out to win an election. That's where journalism comes in. I advise people to look for brand name news organizations. Maybe it's CBS News. Maybe it's your Austin Network. Maybe it's the Dallas Morning News. Maybe it's the New York Times or whatever you care to read. The Wall Street Journal matters not. But what does matter is you know that those organizations are peopled with employees who have studied journalism. They're supervised by people who've been doing this for 10, 20, 30 years. And most important, they have reputational risk. There are enormous risks for them if they get something wrong. And so if you see something on the Internet that outrages you, you can do something today that you could never do before. You can compare that reporting to what other people are reporting. What is CBS saying about that story? What is um, the, the Austin American Statesman saying about that story? Look at two or three sources. You may discover that the thing that outraged you on the Internet never actually happened. I mention in the book a story that there were a, a guy created a website called National Report. It looks like a news website. All the stories on it are made up. One of the stories was about a town in Texas that had been cordoned off by the military because there was an Ebola outbreak. None of those things had ever happened. But the story got a million views. Now, why was he doing this? Because he got a nickel every time somebody clicked on it. He was selling <laughs> advertising, and he kind of enjoyed it. He thought it was funny. That is the death of democracy. Yeah. We have to have reliable information in order to run a democratic society, capital D. And one of the many reasons that you should uh, read Scott Pelley's new book, Truth Worth Telling, is that uh, you describe a uh, fantastic experiment that you run regarding exploiting information on social media that also uses March Madness, the NCAA tournament as well. But I'm not going to spoil that one. People need to go buy the book to read about that. Scott, thank you Love so it. much for the time today. Native Texan, husband, father of two, an award-winning journalist with CBS Evening News and 60 Minutes. The new book is fantastic. Truth worth telling a reporter search for meaning in the stories of our times. Scott, we really enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you so much for the time, sir. Thank I you, am Scott. grateful. Great questions. Thanks so much.